Welcome to episode 80 of The People on Kei Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. Our guests on this episode are Don Edler and Nina Sarnelli. Don Edler is an artist and filmmaker based in Los Angeles. He founded Elevator Mondays in 2017, a social exhibition space, curatorial project, and experimental publishing company. He recently had a show at Hunter Shaw Fine Art in LA titled Two Minutes to Midnight. And I think that that's sort of the great thing that I've learned as an artist to again just pay attention and I think that that's the basis of critical thought and critical analysis and to then deal with that criticality and that position in a constructive way and I think that that's a really important job that we all have. Nina Sarnelli is an artist and musician who also lives in Los Angeles. She's a founding member of two different collectives, the Institute for New Feeling and Dad Pranks. She's in a show opening on November 29th at Human Resources here in L.A. called Ecology of the Edge. And will be performing at the opening reception. Also, if you're in Denver, Colorado, you can check out a show called The Fulfillment Center at Black Cube through December 7th. Art becomes a way of sort of processing or trying to relate myself to this broader problem and like my small world, my like little close world in relation to this far away and really scary thing. And at the end of the show, we're going to hear a track from one of Nina's recent albums. And you know that The People features the voices and ideas that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond. It's like a broken record, and that broken record has been magically repaired. And we're going to start the show with Don Edler telling us about the video piece he made for his recent show at Hunter Shaw Fine Art called The Production of Information. Don Edler and Nina Sarnelli, welcome to The People. Yeah, welcome, guys. Thank you. So, Don, you have a show up at Hunter Shaw Fine Arts right now called Two Minutes to Midnight. Can you tell us about that show? Uh, Yeah. Um, It's a solo show that I'm doing with Hunter Shaw right now. And uh, it kind of basically revolves around uh, three central works, which are all interrelated. But I think I'm going to be talking largely about the production of information, which is a multi-channel video that I made for the show. Um, That project kind of originated out of me wanting to revisit kind of an earlier life as an artist. Uh, I originally went to school for filmmaking or film school. Um, but was kind of pushed out of that because of financial reasons and wound up pursuing uh, an art degree at a state school and um, have been focused on sculpture for the last 10 years, but uh, started to like feel the itch to like get back into video making for that show. And um, something about the sort of political circumstances in this country and the the timing of the opportunity made it make sense for me to kind of revisit video. Um, I should preface this by saying that a big part of this project um, is that I I worked with Hollywood actors, um, which is sort of a a long standing goal of mine. Um, I I moved to New York or I moved to LA from New York uh, basically because I wanted to get away from New York, but one of the major motivators was that I kind of wanted to be closer to Hollywood. Um, I'm really fascinated with Hollywood's global cultural influence. And I kind of wanted to be nearer to the the sort of 
the heart of this like cultural production industry that has dominated at least my experience and most of the Western world and beyond. Um, so I, I kind of knew that I wanted to work within that context for this project. And I was trying to understand an interesting way to sort of work with Hollywood actors or some of the Hollywood sort of production infrastructure that I see around me all the time living here. And I eventually settled on this experimental hybrid documentary slash casting call, um, <laughs> which originally started as me wanting to make a propaganda film. Um, I was responding to the sort of political circumstances in this country that kind of started or are the result of the 2016 election and Donald Trump being president and trying to deal with my feelings around that and figure out a productive way to do that. And a propaganda film felt really appropriate. I felt like the, the way that information was being weaponized and ideology was being used to turn people against each other uh, was something that really resonated as content to be working with. And the idea of a propaganda film seemed like an appropriate way to handle that. That being said, in doing the research for that project, I started to think more and more about how propaganda films are constructed. And that became much more interesting to me than just to try and make my own propaganda film, which I knew was going to be sort of inherently problematic and have lots of contradictions that I probably wasn't going to be able to resolve. But looking at this project uh, more structurally gave me an opportunity to think about the mechanisms at play um, in terms of filmmaking and how films and videos are put together and how they influence the way that we understand the world and process and take in information. Um, so that was the basis of this project. And moving forward from that, I, I wanted to figure out a way to try and do something with all of this like politicized, propagandistic media that was all around me all the time. In the last few years, I've, I've, become, I've developed a really unhealthy addiction to constantly refreshing my news feed on various digital platforms and uh, constantly wanting to like see the next headline. I think I'm secretly hoping that there's some headline that will like resolve the situation for me somehow emotionally or personally, like something to the effect that Donald Trump is no longer president and Republicans <laughs> like don't exactly exist. Like exactly that. Yeah, yeah right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, which is like completely unrealistic. But anyways. And all the people has... that supported him also just, yeah, just changed the... their mind. Yeah. yeah. They didn't right. Yeah. They're just like. Yeah. They Once had you a hit... second. Yeah. Yeah. You want that refresh button <laughs> to actually idea. refresh yeah. the entire structure of, yeah. <laughs> of politics in this country. Totally. Right. Yeah. 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 No, exactly. Okay. Um, Can I ask you real quick? Were you, were you just uh, looking at say like New York Times, Washington Post, Politico Salon, or were you also looking at like Fox, Breitbart, etc.? Yeah, no, I um, I very intentionally wanted to make the sort of sampling for this project and the research for this project try and be as broad as possible. Um, I think the full spectrum of uh, political ideology in this country is equally implicated um, and sort of active in this kind of information warfare that we're experiencing and I wanted to for no other reason than to like have the project 
not be impartial, but at least like acknowledge this spectrum. Um, I, I felt it was like my duty to do all that research. And I had a couple of dark days of going to a coffee shop really early in the morning, drinking a lot of caffeine and like reading Breitbart and Fox News and just like going in deep, trying to do my research uh, and having a pretty miserable time. I, I remember like at one point I was getting my second espresso at like 10.30 a.m. And uh, the barista was like, how are you doing? And I was like, not well. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have a similar masochistic addiction to reading Fox as well. Oh, yeah. So I, I hear you. Yeah. yeah. Um, it it was dark research, but it, it kind of had to be done in order to do this project correctly. And coming out of that, um, I was also simultaneously doing a lot of research into media theory around like the proliferation of mass media and information, um, reading things like uh, Noam Chomsky and uh, Walter Lippmann, uh, and also looking at more contemporary sort of analysis, um, including work that was looking at how algorithms are actually very directly influencing the kind of access to information that we even have. Um, and to answer your earlier question, like, was I looking at only my own sources or other sources? Um, it kind of became apparent to me that it's really quite difficult to look at things outside of your own sort of um, sphere of influence because of how tightly these algorithms are controlling what you can and cannot see, um, which is a like one chapter in the video that I'm talking about. And um, but anyways, so. I, I was doing all this research and what I wound up doing is I took 12 news articles that I thought would be appropriate um, either because they expressed some sort of political ideology or were directly sort of theoretically analyzing the, the way that information functions in a media landscape. And I adapted those into scripts, uh, 12 scripts that I then uh, organized a sort of casting call around using a, a Hollywood casting agency and that became the basis of this film where I organized this casting call and had 12 professional actors come in and do cold readings of the scripts. Uh, these readings were all recorded and basically became the source material for this film. Um, I should also say that it was important to me that the actors be compensated for their time so I, I paid them and um, they also knew what they were getting into like I, the casting call described the project as like an experimental art video and they knew that their their basically audition would be recorded and that that footage would be used and I spoke to them on the phone ahead of time so they they knew what they were getting into um, that being said quite a few of them were really amazing to work with um, I was kind of hoping that these actors could provide like sort of a collaborative element to the project and and help like the project develop through their ability to interpret a script or subject material or like improvise a character. And all of that went quite well. Um, and I wound up at the end of this three day shoot with like 60 hours of footage shot on three cameras and uh, had like this mountain of sort of video to edit, which kind of unfolded over the next month or two um, and then resulted in this multi-channel installation that is on view at the gallery, um, which I also adapted into like a 70 minute single channel video. 
I like the the choice of using I don't know what it is the blue cloth mm-hmm. as a background. I don't know why it makes me think of like presidential debates or like those curtains they have around the voting booths. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, um, it's like a really simple material that's also in the show physically. Yeah, so uh, we we actually re- the the three day shoot for this project was shot in the gallery. Um, that was a sort of a big part of Hunter Shaw, the gallery owner, like helping in the production of the project by giving us a space and helping with other production logistics. Um, but it also made sense that like the the gallery then became the set where this like hypothetical sort of video that emulates uh, you know mainstream news cycle talking heads um, and this sort of critique of these news cycles and the kind of hysteria that develops around it um, was all shot within the gallery. So the gallery became the set and then was like apparent in the video. The video also, again, is very much about the production of this video. So there's lots of shots where um, you can see the set. You can see me uh, performing as the quote unquote director. Um, You can see kind of some of the dialogue between me and the actors and some of the scenes in between takes, um, which are all kind of, I think, part of this this overall image that I was trying to create of the idea that all of this imagery and ideology is produced. Um, and the, the video, if, if I were to like break it down into a couple of sentences to me is really about isolating the language around all of this ideological material that we are exposed to constantly and re-representing that language through different performances and different actors and different characters and kind of playing with the idea that so much of how we understand information and absorb news media is influenced by often very subconscious is often very influenced by subconscious biases against where the information is coming from and how it's being presented to us I was also going to mention too in the blue choice like I mean there's something that's kind of blue screen green screen like empty about it right like that it could be any place or that it could be substitutable but then the fact that it's a curtain and it is not keyable and I mean well there's there's a certain nostalgia that I wanted to like maybe bring up in the in that choice that I think is also like um well first of all blue screen comes before green screen so there's that but there's also this element of like um, a kind of older form, you know, something sort of feels like 80s or 90s or even 70s, which I think is specifically a, a reference that you might want to talk about too in terms of the um, the video that this yeah. is. I mean, um, the, the music at the end and then the, and the gold text and stuff is all related to this scrolling um, video that you yeah, no, talk about Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Um, <laughs> I... Uh, so two things about the the blue screen material. So I, I shot with this uh, chroma key blue uh, backdrop, which is like folded into a curtain, um, which to me references the idea of these chroma key screens, blue screens and green screens. I for a long time was making work with chroma key green, green screen material, but I think that has become like as an aesthetic has become so... Uh, like blown out in contemporary tired. art yeah. um, and tired that I, I couldn't do that again. And I wound up reverting back to this blue screen material, which actually was 
much more appropriate for this project. But then also, um, one of the big influences on this video that I think it's one of those influences that's been with me my whole life as an artist, but I, I don't think about it every day, but it's, it's just so embedded in my psyche that it's always kind of around. Um, this video, in my opinion, very much references, uh, or my video very much references uh, a video from the 1970s by Richard Serra and Carlita Faye Schulman, uh, which is, the video is called TV Delivers the People. And it's this really amazing project that they made together, I think at Electronic Arts Intermex back in the day in New York, where they um, wrote this essay that kind of articulates how TV viewers are actually commodities that are sold to advertising agencies, um, not the other way around. Um, and it breaks this down into like a really eloquent and easy to read essay that was then presented um, sort of as a teleprompter, I think using teleprompter technology of the time. Uh, basically, it's a blue backdrop with yellow scrolling text. And to my understanding, this video was then uh, actually like distributed through public access television, um, which was kind of a technique used by a lot of the early video artists, mm -hmm. uh, which I still think is like art doesn't get better than that, in my opinion. Um, especially in this like 1970s context where all these people are just watching TV and then suddenly there's this like scrolling text and they're like, what is this? And they start reading it and maybe actually question their own like participation in this like macroeconomic media capitalism clusterfuck, which is like our whole life at this point. But I feel like this was an example of artists very successfully critiquing that and engaging that or like delivering that critique to a, like a broader audience beyond just the isolated art world which is really hard to do nowadays but somehow they figured it out you're listening to the people on k-chunk 1630 a.m i'm matthew timmons and i'm ben white remember you can hear us on k-chunk 1630 a.m every third sunday at 3 p.m and you can find us anywhere you get your podcast by searching for The People Radio. You can also uh, find us on our Instagram. It's the underscore people underscore radio. And now let's get back to our conversation with Don Edler and Nina Sarnelli. So one of the aspects of my video that I, that I always kind of, th or I've kept thinking about after making it is the way that it was edited together structurally um, it has a pretty chaotic editing structure and uh, over the length of the 70 minute video it it starts off pretty loose and I, I feel like the viewer doesn't really know what's going on and that was very much intentional for me and it starts to like kind of become more and more succinct as it develops but uh, this kind of chaotic intro was was something that I was playing with as a structure and um, was something that I actually learned from Nina. Uh, <laughs> Nina and I worked together on most of our projects, at, at least the video-based ones, and I've, I've really benefited from being around an amazing cinematographer and editor. And one thing in particular that, again, directly influenced this project was uh, a recent video that may, that Nina had made or is in the process of making. 
Nike X in my dead hand. So that project started, actually, we, we went on a site visit for the other places art fair. I wasn't planning on doing anything there. I was just, I don't know, we were just going to the beach, I think. <laughs> I just I just came along because we were going to the beach. Um, and then we were talking about, we, we were talking about, I mean, learning about the history of the Angels Gate Cultural Center built in the um, former... Uh, military site that's there and then also we went to Angels Gate Park and um, we were talking to Keith about the basketball court that's like super iconic I don't know if you guys have ever been there but it's really beautiful it's basically like this basketball court that looks like it's in the clouds it's like on the precipice you know of this like overlook into the bay and so uh, I was I was hearing from Keith about like the fact that they um film a lot of commercials and music videos and stuff on that court because it, it looks like a player on the court is like flying essentially um, when they jump if you shoot from a low angle. Um, and uh, and I, I just was thinking about sort of this, I guess, coincidence of Nike basketball shoes, <laughs> Nike shoes essentially, and Nike missiles because um, the, the military site that's there is uh, a former uh, Nike missile battery. Um, which is which like is, a program. Yeah, break that down for us real quick. Sure. Yeah, it's a an anti-aircraft uh, military program that was you know designed in the Cold War to shoot down enemy uh, ballistics that are coming in, basically. Um, so yeah, so it's supposedly a defensive strategy, but we also know that we all know that defense has a bit of offense in it, <laughs> at least when we talk about like nuclear deterrence and um, strategies thereof. So. Um, yeah, so I started researching the military history of it. I basically just was like in love with that basketball court <laughs> and, and wanted to know what had been shot there. And that's where the whole, the whole film started. And, um, I mean, Don talks about it. He mentioned the chaos <laughs> of the editing, but I think the chaos of the editing is really, uh, through the project, <laughs> uh, through and through it's, it's chaotic in terms of my interaction with it. I started, um, kind of with the, what felt like a coincidence between these two things being called Nike and maybe nothing more. Um, and as I started to sort of pick at it, I just saw more and more coincidences, I guess. Um, so like the Korean Bell of Friendship is next door to the night, the basketball court, right? They're, I mean, they're like adjacent um, in the park there. Which is for non-LA people. Sure. Tell yeah, this is, is in San Pedro, I should also say, maybe. Um, so not actually in LA, but yeah, my bad. Sorry, Pedro. No, no yeah. worries, San Pedro. Yeah. Um, so it's it's basically uh, the Korean Bell of Friendship was a a monument. It's like a gift from the South Korean government to uh, the United States government for being allies um, in the Korean War, essentially. So so it's just like this monument of this alliance between our sort of capitalist societies um, there and here. And it's a big old beautiful bell. Yeah, it's beautiful. Right. Mm. Totally beautiful. Also on the on this sort of precipice overlooking the ocean. Uh, people go out there for like picnics at sunset. It's super beautiful. So yeah, so the Korean Bell of Friendship and then thinking about um, that sort of started to tie in when, when I was doing this research on uh, sort of the history of Nike basketball sneakers and moving through different endorsed players, basically, or players that endorsed certain shoes, right, through history, starting with Michael Jordan. I discovered that Kim Jong-un and Kim Jong-il actually were uh, huge basketball fans, specifically of the Chicago Bulls when um, Jordan was, you know, the the star. Um, And Kim Jong-un growing up was going to school in Switzerland and um, was obsessed with Michael Jordan. Um, He, he, like, wore Michael Jordan shoes, more 
paraphernalia made drawings of Michael Jordan like that's like sort of his um, childhood obsession Um, and that follows through to today with the relationship between Kim Jong-un and Dennis Rodman who also has his own line of Nike sneakers of course so basically the the the, um, trajectory of the film as you can see quite chaotic or very additive like more and more and more um, bits that keep running together I guess Um, so I was thinking about nuclear deterrence and like anxiety around the like threat of nuclear war which is um you know higher than it has been since the cold war basically it's we're at another another point of extreme tension uh with north korea specifically and uh so thinking about that and how that sort of runs through this bizarre conversation on basketball um and whether or not that was a coincidence i guess and as i started to like sort of lay out all these um disparate pieces of this weird puzzle I was making, I started to reveal itself to me that they're not really a coincidence. So there's like this this language that I was kind of um, unearthing, this connection between the language of sports and the language of war. Um, of course, we all know that, I well, I think most people know that sports have a relationship to war games, war exercises. They use a lot of the same language. Um, when when you talk about like military exercises and drills and stuff um, that we're doing in South Korea, for instance, um, that's ratcheting up tensions with North North Korea, um, that same language is being used uh, when you talk about uh, basketball drills. So I started kind of like mashing together these different languages, and then I also started laying out the history of these basketball sneakers, first Jordan and then um, Dennis Rodman and eventually LeBron James, um, thinking about... Uh, the ways that these basketball stars are positioned as soldiers and even as weapons in advertising specifically. Um, so I have all these Nike commercials in the film that are very explicitly, you know, I mean, LeBron's shoe is called the Soldier X, for instance. That's why he's involved. Um, uh, uh, Dennis Rodman has this, like, you know, you probably already know, very thorough connection to North Korea being this sort of weird, um, unstable uh, ambassador, (laughs) I guess, is how he positions himself. Um, one of the few people who are allowed to go to North Korea, Americans, and, and have a quote unquote quote seat at the table with Kim Jong-un. Um, so, so yeah, so I was tracking these, basically these commercials through the history of these different basketball shoes. Um, and then that led me to think about sort of what, I guess, what are the repercussions of, um, both this competition that's sort of underlying all of this, like kids wanting to emulate basketball stars, wanting to be the best at basketball, um, and how this notion of capital uh, of competition derives from like a free market economy, essentially the idea of healthy competition that we like grow up with, I think as kids, you know, that we should uh, want to be the best and dominate others in sports, <laughs> you know, um, specifically around, uh, I mean, yeah. And then also thinking about sort of the film eventually gets to sort of what are the, what are the problems with thinking of specifically black male bodies as weapons <laughs> and sort of ties that into the movement for black lives and thinking about like, uh, if we, if we envision basketball stars, as the ideal sort of uh, black body. And then we position it as a literally a, a missile flying through space, <laughs> which is how some of these commercials um, depict different 
different basketball stars in Nike commercials. What does that mean when that body is on the street, on the corner? You know, how does that change how how police view um, black male bodies? Well, not to bring up Fox again, but I will. Uh, <laughs> as, as I mentioned before, I have an unhealthy obsession with it. But um, part of watching that film and uh, and hearing you talk about the language of war, warfare and the language of sport mixing, like I feel like a lot of of the rhetoric on Fox or any sort of right wing uh, media outlet, like they'll they'll treat a Democrat versus Republican, a right versus left thing, like they'll treat a college basketball team. That sort of polarization and sort of blind loyalty, which in in sport totally. in sports ball games are like that's the idea. It's like you like you All like the, you like the fun. Phillies yeah. forever, and it's totally. like they can Why? they can fuck up and they can be idiots and but yeah. you're just like but I'm a Phillies guy. Yeah, I mean it's nationalism too. Sports are nationalism totally. essentially. Yeah. I mean the Olympics obvi- in an obvious sense, but um, there's lots of scholarship around that, especially coming out of the Olympics. But um, but the idea of like us versus them, um, our arbitrary team that we've drawn a line around. But yes, I mean, and there's there's a lot of writing around around that. I mean, I mean, they come out, they come very directly out of out of war preparations, even historically, a lot mm-hmm. of things, you know. But a lot of the the specific language around exercises, drills, you know. Um, I actually I had a friend. Uh, watch this film who's like a real crazy basketball nut and I'm not going to recall now all the stuff he told me but I wrote it all down so I will get to it eventually (laughs) and he was basically like like here's all these other things things that sportscasters say you know about players as as literally as missiles in the game or like as I forget what's the word he was using but um just other really clear overlaps in language you know um that are used in offense and defense you know the I I do these like little puns and not even puns but these sort of slippages in language in the film between defense and defense for instance you know um and thinking about like our the way that that rhetoric in the U.S. around defense is used as uh as a way of sort of ramping up military um preparation one thing that the sort of us versus them kind of mentality brings up to me um or rather it's it's one of the really interesting things that i think uh ties together both of these projects where um it is always like there there seems to be this us versus them duality that is kind of a constant and i i think of it as like a or i wonder about it as is it like a systemic issue that comes out of the competition that capitalism instills in us or is it more of a sort of quote-unquote like basic human sort of drive to to protect the self or the family or something like that and I, I think that that's like it's a complicated question that I don't I don't really have an answer for but it's it's kind of this like very present uh, symptom that we see all around us in our culture and it's it's something that I've I've thought a lot about. Um, I think it really is one of those things that we're indoctrinated with in this country from a very early very, age, yeah. and it really does like influence our most fundamental understanding of the world in being a place where there there must be competition, Absolutely. and there must be us versus them, as opposed to and there must be a victor. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think. I mean. I think that's really interesting when you think about like we see um, North Koreans as indoctrinated 
um, you know, brainwashed, <laughs> whatever. Yeah, but we're right? not. We're but not they interrogating their, our own. Yeah, like, they have their yeah. own. They have their own issues with their own ideologies. I will not say that it's perfect over there. Yeah. Um, but you know, we have. We are also living under capitalism in this way that it it it, it uh, is pervasive in all in the way we grow up, the way that we define our own value. Like uh, we understand why, you know, our own sense of value in our in ourselves and. Um, we were talking about this on, we went for a little walk on a hike before this, and we were talking about our own upbringings in relationship to sports and um, competition in particular. And I thought it was really interesting, actually, because I feel like we have very different styles and, and um, sort of criticalities around ourself. And I can, I don't know, like, maybe those things are gendered. Maybe there's other things in our upbringing, you know, that have contributed to it. I don't know what is cause and effect in this, but... I played sports real hard as a kid. And I remember like, I feel like probably early traumas of being, feeling excluded or not good enough, you know? And I have a really hard time with competition in my life. I I feel like very often I want to um, just remove the possibility of competition because the competition just takes over in, uh, it's like a, it's so rooted in my brain. Like, I don't like to play, I was saying, I don't like to play games. I don't like to do like, like, uh, games that have a competitive element, like, um, like card games or something. I, I don't find them very fun. I think cause I either am winning and then it's fun or I'm losing and it's not fun. And I don't like that part of myself. <laughs> you know, I want to just like step outside of that entirely and not participate, I guess. Um, and I think that that really like drives most of my life. There's like, you might say that like that that competition that competitive like drive has propelled me to get a lot done and to like be successful in certain ways but i kind of feel like at what cost you know i've always feeling like you're on the edge of not being good enough and um uh yeah i think it's kind of probably a response to a kind of early training and i i, I use this this phrase healthy competition a lot because i feel like that's something that's like a, a weird term actually like it really de- it really sort of betrays the way that this ideology is indoctrinated in our in our early lives you know like parents want to see um parents you know parents want to think of competition as healthy to get their kids pushing ahead but that's because of the system we live in it doesn't have to be that way and i wonder like what what are the things that parents are telling their children in north korea that are different and are there other other systems we can imagine you know even sitting here in capitalism as we are. You're listening to The People on Kei Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. Remember, you can find us on Instagram at the underscore people underscore radio. Yeah, go there or uh, go to insertblancpress.net and click on the people at the top of the page and you can find this and all past episodes there for free. Absolutely. And now back to our conversation with Don Edler and Nina Sarnelli. Well, I was thinking maybe we could talk a little bit about um, sort of where these projects come from and thinking about, I guess, I mean, we respond to a lot of similar uh, kind of news clippings, let's say. Um, A lot of, you know, the Doomsday Clock comes up in both of our projects pretty heavily. Um, These sort of like new developments in specifically like, uh, at least in these projects in nuclear tensions, I think. Um, and also climate change, I would say, to some extent. Um, and think so I guess I'm curious how you would describe 
what compels you to sort of deal with a particular thing that you've seen or read about and how how what does art bring to that or like how does how does how does art help you sort of process that information or something I think the important aspect or the important part of it is to always pay close attention to things around you and um, and to think critically about the things around you and to try and present that in a interesting way for other people to consume the viewer uh, so for me, I, I think that a lot of the projects that I do come out of these like research-based endeavors that are dealing with like subject matter that I, I don't understand or have a hard time with. Um, yeah. And in the context of the projects we've been talking today, there's there's been a lot of sort of me trying to wrap my head around the the crazy like 24-hour news cycle slash like political hysteria that has really taken over this country um in the last couple of years and i think it's just kind of one thing leads to another but i i think it is always really important to be considerate of your research and the way that you're conducting that research yeah i i think i mean i think maybe then i have a slightly different approach to it in the sense that like so maybe i asked my i asked a question of you that was really good for myself. <laughs> um, the question I wanted to answer for me, like when I see something that just is almost incomprehensible in out there in the far away, like newspaper world, let's say, um, and then I see my life sort of continuing pretty much as is, and the sort of like the way that these sort of like spheres of uh, conflict or something like my conflict is like I'm late for something or whatever and then this wider conflict of the threat of nuclear war for instance to give you some examples um like how those don't like intersect in any meaningful way and I get frustrated and then I'm sort of like okay well could I I could just drop everything and become some kind of organizer you know and devote my life to something that really matters maybe (laughs) no offense art um (laughs) but but then I also am like but I'm Maybe I have a skill set here that I can apply. And so there's a there's a kind of, uh, I think for me, often the art projects become a way of like relating those two spheres, let's say. So I'll give an example. Um, I mean, this one came through the basketball court, which isn't so particular to me. Um, but some other ones, like, for instance, uh, came out of the same moment, actually, of feeling this like escalating tension, nuclear tension and fear around you know, what could happen and how flippant everybody seems to be about it. (laughs) You know, the idea that like, so that speech that uh, Trump gave to the UN General Assembly about totally destroying North Korea was like a starting point, kind of, I mean, it influenced this project that we're talking about for sure. um, But it was actually a starting point for another project in which I was thinking about like the, the psychology of the president and other sort of dictators um, around the world through the lens of my own dog's psychology so um specifically like I I tell this story sometimes like I listen to the news while I walk my dog in the morning and I'm like hearing these kind of like uh these like you know fear-mongering and sort of dominance and submission uh tactics you know and um like all these sort of uh techniques that are used specifically by the president but also by many other mostly male authoritarians around the world and like seeing my dog essentially do the same thing, like at the same time, like I'm listening to this on my headphones and I'm watching my dog, like, you know, his, his sort of like pivot between fear and aggression is 
so it's such a like narrow little uh, um, zone there that he tips so quickly into one or the other, and it's so apparent, you know, with him where it's less apparent or less articulated um, in the human sense. And so that became like a whole project for me was talking about talking about dictators as dogs essentially um and making dog toys for them that was like a sculptural project but so that's like a that a really obvious example of how like art becomes a way of sort of processing or trying to relate myself to this broader problem and like my small world my like little close world in relation to this far away and really scary thing um yeah i i think that that's a really good way of articulating kind of the the impulse behind making things um and sort of a rationalization for why we do the things that we do but um (laughs) totally yeah for me uh i actually kind of have this position on art and the role of the artist also and my relationship to it that I, i feel quite strongly about um which is that uh i think a lot of what we do is is actually quite simple um uh in terms of like what it actually is but the the form that it takes has become complex as the world around us has become complex and what i mean by that is i think a lot of what we're doing um especially in the context of the videos that we're talking about is we're we're basically making like life drawings or collages uh based on what we see around us and i think that it's really important as an artist to to pay close attention to what's around you and I think that that's sort of the great thing that I've learned as an artist. It's the first thing that I learned, you know, in figure drawing class is to like l- pay attention to what's in front of you and pay attention to what you're trying or like, yeah, just pay attention to what's in front of you really. And and then as as you develop as an artist, you start to like get better at paying attention at things around you and paying attention to details. And then you learn things like collage and um, you start to bring ideas together, and I think eventually that that it's training you to again just pay attention. And I think that that's the basis of critical thought and critical analysis. And I think that that's sort of the more advanced thing that you learn as an artist is to think critically around about the world around you, and to then deal with that criticality and that position in a constructive way. Um, and I think that that's a really important job that we all have to pay attention and think critically about the things that are around us and about what we're being told. And I think the, you could break down most, in my opinion, like productive art projects into that sort of very basic understanding. Like it's a problem that an artist has paid very close attention to and has developed a critical sort of discourse around and is then presenting usually in pretty, basic like drawing painting video collage based terms but again those things can get very complex really quickly but it's always just like a problem or a series of problems you know looked at closely and then sort of in almost a journalistic way like reported back to the viewer but with an with a different like sense of openness I guess I think that's I mean you could say that's like the that art is just like a like bad journalism or bad science or bad filmmaking or whatever, you know, or you can say that it's more open-ended and less craft-based. You know, there's lots of other maybe euphemisms or <laughs> um, ways of rationalizing 
like for instance like my my video as documentary do, like doesn't really make sense you know um but it's 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 in its own form it makes perfect sense in like the lineage the lineage of video essay in art you know um, because the rules are relaxed in this way that like I don't have to present one clear argument you know I can I can go off on these tangents and indulge like all these bizarre details because just for the fun of it almost you know or just for the joy of it let me put it that way of of sort of again like seeing something a little differently or presenting things next to each other or something and I think the the thing that people in often look for or enjoy in art is the more active role of the viewer needing to sort of find their own truth in it, you know, mm-hmm. or find their own meaning. Um, so, yeah, so I agree. But then also what divides it is this kind of potential for openness in in form, you know. Good. God, Nina, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. <laughs> thank, you. thank you. It was fun. <laughs> You've been listening to The People on K-Chunk, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and really anywhere you get your podcasts by searching for The People Radio. And if you do that and you have a chance and you feel like it, leave us a rating and review. It really helps us out. Um, you can also go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page. And you can find us on Instagram by going to the underscore people underscore radio. Yeah, go there. And our interstitial music, as always, is Ockfiff by Lewis Keller. And we're going to go out with a track from our guest, Nina Sarnelli, off her album from May 2018. It's called Tell Me About Your Research, which can be found on Bandcamp at ninasarnelli.bandcamp.com. And the name of the song is You Can Handle. Do
You can handle. 